according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn to Matthew 16 as we get started this morning. Matthew 16, dealing with a wonderful chapter, a very pivotal chapter, and uh, one that features tremendous victory on Peter's part where he offers the great testimony and confession that uh, you are the Christ, Son of the living God, and he receives the benediction. And blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and in the celebration of the Lord that Peter had recognized the legitimate Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Um, not too much longer after that, though, and uh, Peter takes him aside, begins to rebuke him, and says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And uh, rather than a benediction, he receives another kind of message from the Lord. And Jesus says, uh, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. So we want to kind of use this as a warning for our own application in the Christian way of life, that if we have a victory, we pass a test, we bear fruit or some wonderful moment in, in the working of our faith, that we don't allow that to derail us or to get prideful and that the very next word out of the Lord's mouth might be, get behind me, Satan. We want to make sure that we don't allow a victory in Christ to plunge us into those realms of pride. All right, setting my phone to vibrate. Vibration is only good in that one limited sense. During Bible class, I have... Believers have been known to vibrate in class. Typically, that's not a positive item. But if uh, conviction takes place, then it does take place. Now, we do recommend cell phone vibration, though. That's always more pleasant than uh, the actual dingling ring in the middle of class. Some of you have some very creative cell phone rings. I'm not one to, to speak on that. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, introduce our series and then get right back to our study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning. Father, I want to thank you for our early morning prayer time that we had. Uh, thank you for the privilege to lift up the congregation and to focus our attention on shepherding. I thank you that we have the work assignment to train pastor teachers. And Father, the privilege and opportunity to instill shepherding values within the, uh, the minds and souls of those that are called to shepherding service. Father, we thank you for this class now this morning and the opportunity to look at the life of Christ, to, uh, to fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Pray that we might be imitators of Christ in every conceivable way. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, just going to take a moment or so. We've got some visitors and, and want to introduce what we're doing in the life of Christ. Uh, the Harmony of the Gospel is a handout in the hallway, and it's worth keeping uh, keeping with you. Uh, it's not necessary to have it every single class and refer to it because it's really more of a reference than, than anything else that will help you in class. But it will help you to mark the progress that we're making through the series. Now, this is our 168th lesson, I think, something like that. And, uh, and all of the MP3 files, most of them anyway, are on the website and available to, uh, to review. You can kind of follow along in the particular areas. So if you want to go back to the beginning and listen to them all, you certainly can. If there's an area that you want to listen to, if 
you want teaching on the temptation in the wilderness or you want the, the episode on the feeding of the 5,000 or walking on water, if there's just something that catches your eye in the harmony and it's, we're already past that point, then you can go to the website and actually download the class where we taught it. So the harmony is good for that reason as well. We are uh, about halfway down or two-thirds of the way down on page two. For today, we are approaching the end of the Galilean ministry. The Galilean ministry is really the bulk of the life of Jesus Christ. It is the longest section of ministry. Uh, we are now within a year of the cross because the feeding of the 5,000 was the Passover one year out from the crucifixion. And so once you pass uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in episode 36, you are within a year of the, the death of Christ on the cross. Uh, we are today dealing with Peter's great confession in episode 46, and you see that that's coming towards the end. There's 56 episodes in the Galilean ministry. The numbers will restart when we get to the Perean ministry, and, uh, and then they will restart again on page 3 when we get to the final Passion Week and, uh, and the events following the death of the resurrection ministry of Christ has its own numbering system as well. All right, so that kind of gives you the idea on how the harmony can be used as a follow-up. In the uh, On the website, austinbiblechurch.com, we have the audio files here on the left, audio files. And then again, once you're on the audio files page, we have a page that's dedicated to the Life of Christ series. And it's organized in a in a sequence, but... Uh, I like the way that it's kept with the current section on top. So since we're in the Galilean ministry, that's what's on top. That's the first thing you come to, the Galilean ministry of Jesus and the, the MP3 files that are listed here, along with the section headings uh, for uh, the different elements. Now, it is about seven lessons behind. We just noticed this morning. Uh, so we'll work on that this afternoon and get the, other, the missing seven up there. And, uh, and then that series will be current. Uh, the older uh, sections of this class are up here in sections 1, 2, and 3. All right, any questions on that, on navigating the website or getting to those files? Just ask us after class, and we'll be glad to uh, to explain that. All right, memories from my childhood, but I won't spend time talking about childhood pets. Let's get to our study, Peter's Great Confession. All right. In Matthew 16, let's get a look at it here in verses 13 and following. We do have parallel accounts in Mark and in Luke. Mark 8, verses 27 through 30, it's only four verses. Uh, Luke uh, 9, verses 18 through 21, uh, again, four verses. And uh, very short, concise treatments. In, Mar in Matthew, we have a lengthy development from verse 13 down through verse 20. And that's what I want to read through here this morning. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We're going to do a lot of work on that verse, particularly because this is the verse that the Roman Catholic Church uses to try to validate their belief that Peter is the rock, and that uh, the church Peter built is the only true church 
on the planet will demonstrate the nature of Peter as Petros, as the masculine rock, and Petra here as the feminine rock, the contrast being that the confession Peter made is the foundation of the church, and we will spell that out for you. We're also going to spend some time on verses 19 and 20, or verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And it'll be wonderful that we get to this passage even at the same time that our second year Greek class is trying to get a handle on, on uh, future paraphrastic participles. So uh, it's most fortunate that we hit a text like this when uh, those students are struggling with an awkward bit of grammar. So we, uh, we will deal with that, uh, particularly because you and I are church-age saints with full heavenly authority. The keys are not limited to the Pope sitting in Rome. The keys were not given to Peter and Peter alone. The keys, the function of keys is a earthly application for a heavenly citizenship. And every single one of us has a citizenship in heaven. Every single one of us is expected to store up our treasures in heaven. Now, how are you going to do that if you don't have the keys? Are you locked out? How do you, st- how do you store away your treasures in heaven? So anyway, we will uh, deal with that and uh, spend some time on, the, on those verses. Finally, verse 20, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now that is powerful and it marks a massive transition. There have been similar episodes with strangers, with Gentiles, with other folks in different settings. But here for the first time now, he is prohibiting his very disciples, the very twelve, and he is pointing them towards the cross. And this is a hinge event. This chapter is a hinge event where he is no longer proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is no longer proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom or the repentance message uh, consistent with the baptizers, uh, John the baptizer's repentance message. Uh, up till now, he has been. He has been proclaiming the kingdom and the disciples have been baptizing and they have been uh, preparing, uh, preparing for that. But from this point forward, that's no longer the focus. From this point forward, he has a year, just under a year, to prepare the twelve for the cross. And so uh, that takes us into episode 47, really, where he uh, starts to prepare them for the cross. And Peter doesn't like it. Really, none of the disciples like it. But Peter is the only one uh, that actually speaks up and puts his foot in his mouth. Probably the other eleven wanted to. Uh, They just uh, weren't as quick about it as, as Peter was. So uh, that's what we have coming up there as well. All right, now for this episode, we've got seven issues we're going to glean in the outline, the first one of which, under point one, and we, we encourage folks to, to keep an outline, to take notes. It, it helps in your concentration. It kind of helps to follow the logic, the thought of the presentation. So the first point of study, the Lord tested his disciples with a two-part question. This is a test. It is an evaluation of his disciples. And he's evaluating how they evaluate. He's evaluating how they can have show discernment in their own perspective. The Lord tested his disciples with a two-part question. All three Gospels make reference to this. The Matthew record, the Mark record, and the Luke record. But it's a test. The Lord tested his disciples with a two-part question. In Matthew, the two parts come in verses 13 and 15. In Mark 8, the the two questions come in verses 27 and 29. And in Luke 9, the two questions come in verse 18 and verse 20. First of all, what is the understanding of the people? And then secondly, what is your understanding? 
What is the understanding of the people? And then secondly, what is your understanding? And this is valuable. This is absolutely valuable. And we need to keep this approach uh, and make use of this approach in our ministry, in our families, in a variety of applications. But what is the understanding of the people? See, all too often, particularly those with children and if uh, the children are in the government schools and other type of situations, what what do your teachers say uh, about uh, the origins of the universe? You know, you just come home from school and you've got to deprogram the children almost in terms of what they've been brainwashed with. And uh, the children say, oh, well, the teacher says that, uh, you know, Big Bang, there was this ball of gas and the, the, the goo and, and all the rest of it. See, what Ken Ham calls the uh, from goo to you is how he calls that the program of the universe. All right. Really? Is that what your teacher says? What do you say? What do you say? And to hopefully instill a contrast and critical thinking skills to really where our children are able to recognize differences between cosmos wisdom and God's wisdom. The world's wisdom, which is foolishness to God, and God's wisdom, which is foolishness to the world. What does your teacher say about, uh, about sex? Oh, well, if you wear a condom and don't get the girl pregnant, then whatever you want to do is fine. Right? That's the world's message. It feels good. Do it. Have fun. Just, just uh, you know, don't get pregnant or don't get a disease and so forth. Okay, well, that's what the world says. What do you say? What do you say? And is your viewpoint a reflection of divine viewpoint or is your viewpoint a reflection of cosmos wisdom, human viewpoint, the world system? So when he tests them on this, he's approaching it from this Perspective. What is the understanding of the people and what is your understanding? We use similar processes in our ministry workshop. Uh, we'll use it right here in this very class on Wednesday morning. The idea on, uh, on the keys of heaven. And uh, I say to you, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. All right. So what does Roman Catholicism say about that verse? All right. But what do you say? About that verse, see, and we can use this this method of instruction. It's a question and answer method, but it's designed to provoke thought. It's also designed to test whether or not these disciples have discernment, whether they themselves can show discernment to uh, the things that are out there. And uh, it's a it's a vital skill for for shepherds, for pastors, for those who are going to be Bible teachers. Now, the two questions under point two, the two questions centered on the identity of Jesus. The two questions centered on the identity of Jesus. Still a raging debate to this day. All the ridiculous people out there that say, oh, he was a good man. And they limit his being to humanity on a moral basis, that he was a good man. He was more than a man. If all he was was a good man, then... Then uh, and, and if you deny his deity, if you deny that he was God, then he's not a good man because he claimed to be God, in which case he's a liar. And if he's a liar, then he's not a moral teacher, is he? He's certainly not a good moral example if he's an inherent liar or he's out of his mind. Josh McDowell wrote that he's either insane or he's a liar or he's truly the son of God who he claimed to be. You really can't come to any other conclusion. So the, the, the question of I am and the question of son of man comes into view here. First of all, who do the people say that I am? 
I am. We really want to lock in our understanding on the I am principle. On the I am principle. Okay, this is where we ran out of time last week, so we can kind of slow it down here and catch our breath a little bit and proceed on and gain some new ground. The two questions center on the identity of Jesus in the I am principle. Um, I'm going to, there are some sub points on this, but the second part of this is the son of man portion. Uh, he says, who do the people say that the son of man is in verse 13? That's a title. And it's a title that has a tremendous doctrinal application behind it, but it also has an, an unbelievable stumbling block built in. A stumbling block that caused the Pharisees to just go, go berserk. And uh, we'll, we'll be spelling that out for you here shortly. And then when he rephrases it, he says, but who do you say that I am? And so we understand that the question related to the Son of Man in verse 13 and the identical question related to I am in verse 15 is the same question phrased two different ways. The world was reacting to the title Son of Man. And they stumbled. The disciples were not reacting but responding to the truth of I am. And they embraced the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. So, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Wrong answer, wrong answer, wrong answer, three times over. But who do you say that I am? In the concept of Jehovah, the concept of I am, the concept of Yahweh telling Moses, go tell Israel that I am is redeeming. Peter and the apostles here were able to embrace the I am message and declare with confidence, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is uh, an amazing testimony there. The few short words contained in verse 16 contain so much doctrine inherent. We understand the maturity on Peter's part to recognize that. That's why Jesus celebrates with the, the benediction in verse 17. All right. The I am message. Let's get some subpoints under this. First of all, the specific identity of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. It's the same word. The specific identity of Jesus as the Messiah Christ is non-negotiable. It is non-negotiable. It is to this day, but in the context of, of this chapter, it is non-negotiable for him to be understood as the promised coming one. The promised coming one. We realize it's, it's hard for us sometimes because we're 2,000 years after the fact. And we're looking at it with hindsight. All right? I imagine the day will come in the millennium where they look back to the rapture of the church with respect to the rapture generation and how clueless we were at the time. <laughs> we should have been diligent. We should have been eager. We should have been living daily, moment by moment, waiting for that trumpet. But the vast majority of the bride is not doing so to this day. It is only a remnant that actually is. There's a reward. Blessed are those who have loved His appearing. There is a reward, a crown that is promised to those who have loved His appearing, to those that were eagerly waiting for when He returned. But I think that's the small minority compared to the vast bulk of uh, 
of the, uh, of the bride of the Christian church. All right, the specific identity of Jesus as the Messiah Christ is non-negotiable. Remember, every believer, every believer at this time, in the first century, every believer is saved by grace through faith like you and I are. But they're saved by grace through faith in a coming one. In a coming one. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. All right? And you and I place our faith in the one who came. Because with hindsight, we have the historical record of a past completed action. The, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Tetelestai, it is finished. And so, when, when you and I became believers in Jesus Christ, it was by placing our faith in the promise of God the Father and the, the value of that sacrificial death on the cross in our place for our account, and we understand that. But they got saved the same way. They were just looking forward. Looking forward to the coming one. The coming one is coming. He's coming. He's coming. All right? Now, we, as we've been explaining, there's a difference in waiting for a coming one, knowing that he's on the way, and actually coming face to face looking right at him. Okay? And this generation had that wonderful privilege and opportunity. The problem was, by the time he was baptized, by the time he began his public ministry, by the time he traveled around Israel and uh, performed his miracles, delivered his messages and did his ministry, a great number of believers, is it fair to say the majority? I don't know. But a great number of believers were slaves. And they were slaves to legalism. They were slaves to uh, the Pharisees. They were slaves to the legalism of their Judaism culture of the day. They were slaves to pride in so many different ways. That's why Christ was promising them freedom. He said, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. And they said, we've never been slaves to anybody. How clueless. They had no idea. So, these believers that were looking for a coming Messiah were so caught up in legalism that when they came face to face with the Messiah, they didn't recognize him for who he was. And in some cases, they rejected him, they hated him, and they crucified him. All right? So, to recognize him as the Christ is non-negotiable. Um, and even afterwards, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, much of the work in the early chapters of the book of Acts was telling these expecting Jews, waiting for the Christ, waiting for the Christ, was, no, you missed him, he came, and you need to identify one plus one equals two. You've got to put it together. Everything you know about the coming Christ needs to match up with what we're telling you about Jesus of Nazareth. And you've got to put those together and identify them as one and the same. And that was the nature of uh, Jewish evangelism in the, uh, the, sh the months in, in the few short years between 33 A.D. and 70 A.D. in the destruction of the temple. So you've got these scriptures here, not only Matthew 16, 16, but over in chapter 11 and verse 3. Also the understanding of who the Christ is uh, in John 4 and in John 11. This was their expectation, and it's worth Reminding ourselves of these, Matthew eleven three. John the Baptist is in prison, and some teach this that he was kind of growing weak in his faith, or he was having moments of doubt. I don't believe he was, but that's material we've taught already. 
But he says to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? The idea being that it, it was possible for there to be two Christs. It was possible because there, was, there were two messages in the Old Testament. There was a message of the suffering Messiah in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 and elsewhere. There was the message of the glorious reigning Messiah. And some of the prophets made careful search and inquiry, seeking to determine which person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And one conclusion they came to was that there would be two. That either there would be two different Christs, or one Christ would come twice. And now we know, of course, what's the answer. There's one Christ, and he's coming twice. He came once, he's going to come a second time. But John the Baptist didn't know that. He didn't know about first advent and second advent being two distinct events separated by 2,000 years in time. So he says, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? But the title expected one is significant because this is the recognition of the uh, arrival of the one that's been expected ever since Genesis 3.15. Ever since enmity between your seed and her seed. As a matter of fact, I'll read, if we have time today, I'll read a clip from Arnold Fruchtenbaum who wrote that when Cain was born, Eve thought he was Christ, that he was the expected one, that he was Yahweh. And uh, we'll look at that. It's a wonderful quote by Fruchtenbaum that uh, is in one of the newest uh, resources that I have. All right, uh, other references in John 4 and in John 11. We've got references to the expected one, to the coming one, to the Christ. In John 4, it's a Samaritan woman at the well. And she's been rather immoral. Um, and he exposes that. He says, go call your husband and come here. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, well, you've said that well. Truly, I say to you, uh, you've correctly said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. <laughs> right? Now, I think in modern times, that would be rather insulting. You know, how dare you? Who do you think you are? What, have you been spying on me? And yet this woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And rather than being offended, and rather than being scandalized or, or, or any other reaction in carnality, she's actually excited because we come to find out that she has been craving Bible teaching. She wants answers. And if that means she has to have some embarrassment along the way, oh well, she's going to get her answers. And that's what she's committed to. That's, uh, that really ought to be our perspective. In, 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 in we're committed to growing in grace and knowledge. We're committing to learning the Word of God. And are there going to be some embarrassments along the way? I'm sure there are. But whatever that happens, that's just a pride test. Let that go and get over the embarrassment and keep learning. So she realizes she's face-to-face with a prophet. She's face-to-face with much more than that. She doesn't just, she just doesn't know it yet. And so she wants her questions answered. She, she wants the, to end the, the Mount Zion, Mount Gerizim debate. You know, our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. This, this is the division between the Jewish scriptures and the Samaritans. The Samaritan Pentateuch changes a few of the things around and, and uh, different things there. So now she wants an answer. And uh, he gives her an answer, and she's not exactly... Uh, spiritually minded enough or mature enough to deal with what he's given her. So she says, well, in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. Remember, Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is Greek. 
when that one comes, the expected coming one, he will declare all things to us. And so Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. I am. And so uh, she goes running off and grabs the men and says, uh, I think the Christ is out at the well. (laughs) She goes to the city and says to the men, you know, those guys come see a man who told me all the things I have done, really all the things we have done. And uh, this is not the Christ, is it? And anyway, there's a tremendous revival that takes place here. They come out and they respond and they respond positively. And in verse uh, 42, they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So identifying, they have all their expectations, the coming one, the coming one, the Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, the one who's going to teach all things. And uh, now they have, they're able to identify Jesus of Nazareth face to face with all of those expectations. So it's non-negotiable. Absolutely non Negotiable. All right. The second idea here, there's another debate we have to spend some time with. The expected prophet was another debate. Now, ever since, ever since Deuteronomy, and we're going to see the passage coming up um, under point three. We can look at it here briefly this morning. It's in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that the Lord is going to lift up another prophet like unto Moses. And this caused a lot of debate. So the expected prophet was another debate. Was the expected Moses-like prophet, was he to be identified with the Elijah forerunner or with the Messiah Christ? And they debated that for centuries. All right. Was he going to be identified with the Elijah forerunner or with the Messiah Christ. Okay. Remember, we have it so we have it laid out for us. We've got hindsight. And we can say, well, that's a stupid question. For us today to keep debating it, yeah, it'd be pretty stupid because it's a subtle matter. But for them, without the advantage of the New Testament, without the advantage of the fulfillment, it's not cut and dry. All right, Deuteronomy 18, it's we'll look at it briefly and then we'll we'll save really the bulk of it for when we get there into point three. But at least, so you have a framework here this morning. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. There's a tremendous amount that goes into that. Obviously, a prophet like me, there really has not. There were lots of prophets after Moses, but there was none quite like Moses that reached to the level of Moses. Moses was always viewed as the pinnacle of an Old Testament prophet. Uh, Most of the other prophets served to minister towards a king, like Nathan ministered to David or Elijah ministered to kings. uh, uh, Isaiah ministered to Hezekiah and so forth. There was no king in Moses' day. Moses was the prophet, dictator, uh, the spiritual leader and temporal leader of Israel. So the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore. I will die. 
The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, normally we think of that rebellion of Israel's part in the negative, that they they didn't want a face-to-face relationship. They wanted an intermediary. They wanted a mediator between God and man. And when you teach that in Exodus, it seems to be a negative, and God gives them the Levitical priesthood. Here we see actually a praise for such a concept, because until, remember there's one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ, until the one mediator accomplishes that purpose, that work of reconciliation and redemption, Israel as a nation really cannot be in a face-to-face relationship yet. So anyway, this is the promise. Now this was given in, in Deuteronomy and then debate raged and raged and raged because additional scriptures came along to describe the coming Christ. And then other scriptures came along to describe the coming forerunner. Isaiah talks about the forerunner. Malachi talks about the forerunner. And so now you've got Jewish believers with their Bible and they're looking for two people. Or maybe they're looking for three. They don't know. They know they're looking for the Christ. Everybody's looking for the Christ. They're also looking for the forerunner. Right? Because Isaiah and Malachi talk about Elijah the prophet returning as the forerunner, the herald. And then they're looking for this prophet. Moses spoke about a prophet being lifted up. But some of them say, well, wait a minute. Maybe that prophet is the same as the Christ. Or maybe that prophet is the same as the forerunner. You see why that might be confusing? And so they would search the scriptures. They would debate. They would discuss. And some would say, nope, we're only looking for two. We're looking for the forerunner and we're looking for the Christ. And that coming prophet is the Christ. Okay? They got it right. But they didn't know until it was unfolded. Another group said, no, 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 we're looking for two. We're looking for the prophet. We're looking for the forerunner. We're looking for the Christ. And that prophet Moses spoke about is the forerunner. Because he's the prophetic herald that's preparing the way for the king. And prophets minister to kings. Now, they were wrong. But they had no way to know that, and they could have been right. Just as a matter of looking forward to the future. And then another group would say, no, no, we're looking for three people. We're looking for the prophet that Moses spoke of, we're looking for the forerunner, and we're looking for the Christ. And there will be a trinity. Because the prophet and the forerunner will be two witnesses preparing the way for the coming of the Christ. And they might have had a case for that. They could have looked at a couple of lampstand witnesses in Zechariah, and they might have said, you know what? God often works with pairs of witnesses. Uh, the, the prophet and the forerunner are going to be two different witnesses, and the Christ will be a third. We're looking for three people coming. Okay? And until the Gospels, until the events unfolded, they had no way to make a definitive, dogmatic statement and know with 100% certainty. That's what First Peter says when he says, you know what, these guys weren't sloppy. The prophets of old made careful search and inquiry. And yet things were kept deliberately unrevealed until they were unfolded. So there was confusion. And we see this in John chapter 1. We see this when John the Baptist begins his ministry. The Gospel of John chapter 1. There's all sorts of other false views on that, by the way. The Muslims will tell you that that prophet Moses was talking about was Muhammad. That when he said that God would lift up a prophet like Moses, 
He was talking about Muhammad. And that when Jesus said, uh, I'm going away and, and I'm going to send you a comforter, he was talking about Muhammad. That's what the Quran states. That's the evil of Islam. All right. Fortunately, we have the scriptures that tell us that the prophet Moses ta- spoke about was not Muhammad. It was Jesus. And we know that from the scriptures. All right. So John chapter 1. This is the testimony of John, verse 19, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? See, when they send priests and Levites, they're sending Bible students, Bible scholars, experts in the law. And who are you? And he confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That was the first thing. Are you the Christ? They're waiting for the coming Christ. And in particular, those that had a handle on uh, Daniel's 70 weeks knew they were coming close. Absolutely knew they were coming close. And so then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Okay, so there's the second possibility. We know Christ is coming. We've got all the messianic passages of the Old Testament. But we also know that Elijah is coming. The forerunner is coming. Again, Isaiah, Malachi, these prophets speaking of the forerunner. Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. A lot of work to do with that. We did that because he is the forerunner, but he's not Elijah. So that's a yes and no, but he tells them the no part. And then they asked, well, are you the prophet? What's that about? That's that Moses prophet from, from Deuteronomy 18. And they've ruled out the Christ. They've ruled out the uh, Elijah, the forerunner. Well, what else could, you, could this guy be? Who is this guy with camel hair garment and eating locusts and not cutting his hair and, and living the Nazarite life and doing all this stuff? Who do you think you are anyway? Are you the prophet? And he said, no. So they said to him, well, then who are you? So we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then he quotes the forerunner verse. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. All right, over in chapter 6 and verse 14, chapter 7 and verse 40, we find other references here. He fed the 5,000. And he had leftovers. He takes uh, just a few loaves and some fish and he... Uh, five barley loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 and has 12 baskets left over. And uh, they gathered him up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, and which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. They identify him as the Deuteronomy prophet, but they fail to ascribe him as the Christ. Well, we dealt with this episode not too long ago. Over in chapter 7 and verse 40. John seven forty. We have not done this episode yet. It's coming up. This is the Feast of Trumpets, six months out from the crucifixion. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. <laughs> and a big fight breaks out. This is the prophet. No, no, no. This is the Christ. It's like, I don't, I don't know, debating two different things, right? <laughs> and they're both saying the same thing. But they're insisting on their their slant, their approach to it. They're both right. What are they fighting about? 
still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So that we know about that Micah passage says he's coming from Bethlehem. This guy's from Galilee. Yeah, but he was born in Bethlehem. Did you know about that? He also uh, was brought up in Galilee. Did you know about that? How about the Old Testament passage that talks about uh, a light shall shine uh, in the darkness, a light from Galilee of the Gentiles? See, we've got two geographical promises of the coming Christ, one of which is the famous one, the Bethlehem one from Micah. But then there's another one that talks about the great light that's shining in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the light of Galilee of the Gentiles. And it seems like those are contradictory. You could look at both of those and say, well, gee, they contradict each other. Throw them out. No, they do contradict, but they're both true. Because one was where he was born, the other is where he was raised, and they're both true. Everything God promises is true. We may not understand it until it's fulfilled and we see how it fits together. Anyway, here's this uh, this big argument. It's like the, what were those commercials back when I was a kid? The old, um, less filling, tastes great. Okay. Oh, it's a beer commercial. Okay, never mind. Can't use a beer commercial to illustrate something in church. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that was the idea in the commercial. They're arguing over, over, you know, something stupid. Less filling, tastes great. You know, okay, he's the prophet, he's the Christ. Let's get back to Bible. My apologies. Goodness. All right. So here's the debate. Now, until it's fulfilled, it's legitimate to discuss it. I mean, you're looking forward, you're anticipating. Um, uh, you know, we do the same thing today with eschatology in terms of what in, is yet future, in terms of these different things. And, and there's legitimate difference of position on a whole slew of different things. The, the Ezekiel 38-39 Gog-Magog invasion of Israel, for example. Is that mid-trib, pre-trib? Is that first half, second half? Is it millennial? When is that? And there are all sorts of understandings of Ezekiel 38 and 39. There are all sorts of dispensational understandings of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's only an arrogant buffoon that can say with certainty that he knows 100% what's going to happen. All right. The other issue, so we have these debates. The identity of the Christ was a huge debate. The identity the expected prophet was another debate. The third area, the title Son of Man. The title Son of Man was a stumbling block. The title Son of Man was a stumbling block. And it did not fit with the Jewish expectations for the Son of David. The title Son of Man, stumbling block. And it did not fit with the Jewish expectations for the Son of David, for the Messiah Christ. They were very correct in identifying that the Messiah, the coming Christ, was indeed the Son of David. That he would rule on the throne of David. They were were correct on that. But they hated the title Son of Man. They rejected the title Son of Man. The, uh, they were so locked in into an either-or mentality that if he was the Son of David, he could not be the Son of Man. And in many cases, they rejected the title Son of God, accused him of blasphemy for it. 
because they had to have son of uh, son of David and nothing else. Not willing to accept a both and consideration. Maybe he is both the son of David and the son of man, you think? Now, if you're willing to accept a both and, then you realize we're not attacking your son of David beliefs. We just want you to widen your thinking to also understand the son of man beliefs and also widen your understanding even more to understand the son of God beliefs, that he is God in the flesh. Second member of Trinity, God the Son. And you've got to understand the both and and embrace the totality of what's revealed and not be so locked into the one and make it an either or thing and, and, and so draw a line in the sand at Son of David and reject everything else. All right? And this is a concept, by the way, that has lots of applications in modern uh, theology and different debates and things that we discuss from time to time. Over in John 12, I think we have a very... There's several places we can look for this, but in John 12, I think it's really spelled out pretty well. This is in the Passion Week. He's had the triumphal entry. He's uh, faced with struggles. He's not even in the garden yet. And he's faced with, uh, in verse 27, my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. I think day by day by day by day, from Palm Monday, the triumphal entry on Palm Monday, to Good Friday, I think he had to face this test every single day, even up until Gethsemane the night before. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Three times the Father testified to the Son. His baptism at the River Jordan, the Mount of Transfiguration, and here. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it, saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this cosmos. The ruler of this cosmos will be cast out. See, the victory he achieves on the cross is the tactical strategic victory that guarantees the destruction of uh, Satan and his forces. And I, if, first class and I am, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now we're going to teach this. We'll, have some, we'll spend some time on this. Because uh, you don't want to make the mistake of saying that this is a universalism, that everybody um, becomes saved. But it is a statement of universal drawing. So we want to make sure, obviously, we don't have a universal redemption. Unbelievers die and go to hell. Anyway, we'll, we'll spend some time on that. Uh, verse 33, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die, to be lifted up. He was going to be crucified as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so he too must be lifted up. And um, the crowd then answered, we have heard about the, in the law that the Christ is to remain forever. This is one of the big stumbling blocks here. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? And then secondly, who is the Son of Man anyway? <laughs> right? Big hang-ups here. Because the Christ is to live forever. The promise to David was a son on the throne forever. Right? And they're so consumed by this either-or mentality 
that they're not able to accept the both and. Yes, he is going to die. And he is going to rule forever. It is both and. They are both true. God makes good on every promise he ever makes. And the title Son of Man that caused them for a problem. Well, we're going to deal with that. Who is this Son of Man? Now, they loved the title Son of David. It fit all their expectations. Messiah fit all their expectations. But see, because see, Son of David is Jewish. Son of David is the, the, the rule of the Jewish people over the Gentiles. Son of man, wait a minute. That's rather inclusive, don't you think? Doesn't that include all humanity, Jews and Gentiles? And wait a minute. This son of David, we're going to have dominion over this Gentile. What, what are you doing with that son of man title? Okay. It's a real problem. It did not fit their expectations. Notice over in Matthew twenty-two forty-two. Well, the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. See, they, they've been peppering him for months and years. And so now he turns the tables on them. When the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Just getting an answer from him, right? It's a trap is what it is. And, well, they said to him, the son of David. Obviously, what a dumb question. If you'd have gone to one of our rabbinical schools, you'd have known that. If you'd have gone to the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai or one of the preeminent uh, Jewish schools of the day. Remember, they accused him of being agramatos. He's illiterate and idiotized. He's an idiot. He's uneducated, untrained. They said, uh, well, he's the son of David. So he says to them, how then does David, in the spirit, under verbal plenary inspiration of scripture, under the control and filling of the Holy Spirit in writing the Bible, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. You realize there's a doubling of Jehovah in that verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, the reality is, we, as we all know, we've got the hindsight, we've got the perspective, we know that God the Son is Yahweh, He is the Lord, He is God in the flesh, so He is the Son of David, but He is still the Creator of the universe, the Sovereign Lord. And so David knows that, and David writes about that, the Lord said to my Lord, and, and David's got no problem with this, the pre-existent glory of Christ, and any, everything else that we recognize very well. The Pharisees, though... Don't want to deal with that. They, the, the son of David, in, in their approach, needs to be less than David. He needs to be a king. He needs to be a human. He needs to be, he needs to be less than David. He needs to be the son of David, a, a political king. And they want to be able to call the shots. All right? So if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. All right. So they've got their expectations and they don't want to think about anything else. They don't want to think about anything else. 
saying. I've known Pentecostals, by the way, that they've got their conclusions, they've got their beliefs. Tongues is still valid. Why? Because they speak in tongues. And if you try to show them a scripture or talk about uh, how prophecy will be done away, how tongues will cease, how knowledge will be done away, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away, if you want to even talk about the scriptures, you get nowhere with them. Because this is the conclusion. And nothing else is up for discussion. All right? And let's, let's just examine the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? See, talk to a, to a militant, militant Arminian. He has no framework for sovereignty because he's so magnified volition. And, and so we have to take this and reject that. Or talk to a militant Calvinist the other direction. Everything is sovereignty. There is no volition. And we're not going to consider anything else. Well, can we look at both? Can we look at this and this? Or we're going to be so locked into the Bethlehem thing that we say, no, Galilee can't be true. Or so locked into the Galilee thing, we say, no, no, Bethlehem can't be true. Or so locked into the son of David, we say, no, 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 son of man is, is blasphemy. See, we've got to realize that the whole counsel of God's word includes all of it. Son of David is true. Let's teach the doctrine. Son of man is true. Let's teach the doctrine. Son of God is true. Let's teach the doctrine. Sovereignty is true. Teach it. Volition is true. Teach it. And, uh, and let's not be pharisaical, say, nope, this is our theology, this is our school, and we're not going to consider your son of man title. We don't like your son of man title. Quit talking about the son of man title. In fact, they put the son of man to death. All right. Um, let's look at this title, son of man, because this is the second part of the two-part question. He asks about I am, and he asks about the Son of Man. The two questions center on the identity of Christ, and in quizzing for the identity, he used I am as language, and he used the Son of Man as language. Uh, it's not recorded in Mark and Luke. It is unique to Matthew. Matthew 16:13, he used the phrase Son of Man. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, there are 84 scriptures to try to write down, and to try to write them all down, I didn't even try to put them all on the screen. I just listed the Matthew references on the screen. There's 84 times in the gospel the phrase Son of Man occurs. The Son of Man occurs 84 times in the gospels. In Matthew, it starts at chapter 8, verse 20, and takes you all the way through chapter 26, verses 2, 24, 45, and 64. I'm not going to read the whole screen for you. You can get a concordance or you can get, a, uh, get your Bible software out and do a phrase search on Son of Man and set uh, the Gospels as your range and you get a complete listing on it. But there are some Old Testament passages that reference Son of Man. And if the, the Jewish people were not so locked into their Son of David Jewish mentality, they may have... Uh, had a frame of reference in order to embrace what had been given in the Old Testament as per Son of Man. Two passages in Daniel, Daniel 7.13, Daniel 8.17, and then 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. 
93 times in the book of Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel's title. Every time God calls Ezekiel, he calls him son of man. 93 times in 48 chapters. Son of man, listen up. Son of man, go to the people. Son of man, do this. Son of man, deliver this message. Son of man, lay on your side. Son of man, roll over. Right? Everything there in the book of Ezekiel. And it's significant because Ezekiel is the prophet of the exile. Daniel was a contemporary, but he was not a speaking prophet declaring, Thus saith the Lord to the nation of Israel. He was a political officer with a Gentile ministry. Jeremiah was a contemporary, but he never went into captivity. He remained in Jerusalem while the city was destroyed, had a brief stint in Egypt, but he never went into the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel was the, one and only, the prophet of the captivity. That is, as a speaking prophet to the nation of Israel, delivering, thus saith the Lord, messages. And 93 times he's called Son of Man. So think about that and the typology of Ezekiel as a type of Christ. If you think about the coming Rejection of the Christ, becoming the mystery of the church that's unrevealed in the Old Testament, the uniting together of Jew and Gentile in one body, the idea of, you realize the Babylonian captivity was only 70 years, but it was a picture of a much larger, longer, global, worldwide dispersion of Israel. A dispersion that continues to this day, notwithstanding the political restoration 50 years ago, 60 years ago. All right. We will have to come back to this because I'm out of time. It's already the top of the hour. Uh, but spend some time this week, particularly in Daniel 7, focus on the Son of Man who is making his appearance before the Ancient of Days and is being presented before the Ancient of Days. And you will see a wonderful corollary there to God the Son and God the Father and some uh, some powerful imagery there that had they cared to accept it, they would have not been so filled with such hatred with respect to the title Son of Man. All right. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We do thank you for this class. We ask for your continued blessing as we study, as we proceed forward in the life of Christ, episode by episode, item by item. And in particular, if this episode takes us some time, Father, it's worth it because of the confusion out there in the Peter the Rock and the keys of heaven and and everything else, Father. It's vital. It was the biggest stumbling block to the Pharisees of their day. Continues to be a contentious scripture to our very time. So equip us to use your word. Equip us to be faithful uh, in our testimony of, of truth. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.